Ord. Good, just just started. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Welcome to season two of Waddle Partners Market Thinkers series. This season is a change of pace from 2020, where we spoke to leading fund managers about managing capital. This series, we're going to dedicate it to themes. Uh, they might, they are uh, the most important technological, demographic, or societal trend changes that are occurring globally. Drew and I will be speaking to an expert each week, uh, spanning either financial markets, uh, the broader industry, about these themes and trying to dig further into them. Why themes? History has really showed that if you can pick a theme and a change and then invest into it, then ultimately it's a big driver of wealth and success. So at our investment committee, when we meet, Drew and I meet, uh, and externals, we always talk about big themes. It's not just themes though. You could have easily picked smarter phones, smartphones um, in the 1990s or early 2000s and picked Blackberry as Nokia as the most successful. Obviously not the case and you should have been in Apple. So it's not just about themes. It's also picking the appropriate asset within that theme. Over the next uh, series of 10, we're going to be talking about themes and themes that we've identified. Um, and they include the blockchain or cryptocurrency, digital advertising and the new face of, of media, inflation, which is very topical at the moment, high performance computing and, and how 5G fits into that, digitization of retail, 3D printing, new energy, uh, energy storage and electrification, um, big data in the cloud, e-commerce and digital payments. And of course, this session is dedicated to the growing Asian middle class. So Drew, do you want to just introduce the theme and introduce our guest? It sounds like a busy few weeks ahead, doesn't it, Jamie? With all those I can't topics even say there. afterwards. So yes, it's going to be busy. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, we'll introduce Sunny Banjia from uh, Antipodes Partners, and the the topic today is the Asian middle class, but uh, and and the huge consumption theme that's coming out of that. Um, we were talking to Sunny before this, and he kind of pointed out that the the middle class is a very broad definition and, and middle class in different countries is defined very differently mm. so i think he's going to run us through a bit of a more nuanced breakdown in terms of the the income cohorts that, that are within the middle class particularly in asia and the different consumption trends and themes that are occurring within different parts of uh, the region so i thank sunny for joining us and maybe ask us uh, provide a bit of background in your your uh history in in asia and in uh, financial markets sunny well, thanks very much, guys, for having me on. I'm very excited to be here and talk about uh, something that I'm very passionate about, just the growing uh, emergence of the Asian uh, middle class um, that, you know, we've been witnessing for the last uh, several decades and, and still is very much in track and, and probably into another different phase in terms of its uh, growth trajectory. Uh, I've, I work at uh, Antipodes Partners. We're a global pragmatic value manager. Uh, I focus on uh, Asian equities, leading the Asian equity research effort um, at the firm. Uh, I've been doing uh, Asian equities for um, just under 15 years. Um, so I've been, you know, witnessed the emergence of the region uh, quite broadly. And, you know, Asia is very, um, quite a diverse range of opportunities exist in Asia today, of which the Asian middle class being front and center as one of the most important themes over the next decade. And just a question around, so you say pragmatic value, does that mean you don't just look at PE ratios or? 
<laughs> yeah, look, obviously we, we careful. We absolutely look at what businesses are worth. Um, and it's our job to work out, you know, what is the intrinsic value of each and every business and whether we're, you know, getting it at a, at a cheaper valuation or cheaper price today than, 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 um, than what the market's kind of uh, priced in. Um, but yeah, we don't dogmatically just look at ratios. Um, we we want to buy high quality, cheap businesses um, and own them through the cycle. Um, you know, because that's kind of what our, that's, our, that's what our mantra is. Excellent. Do you want to shoot through these uh, kind of scene setting questions, Jamie? Well, I actually want to get off our agenda straight away, Drew. So <laughs> can we just talk about how you, you said the definition of a middle class um, is different depending on who you're talking to in Australia or we're in Melbourne, you know, middle-class would be Eastern, Eastern suburbs, um, you know, probably income streams of, you know, hundred plus and, you know, relatively wealthy. What's the definition in Asia or what, what should we be thinking about when you say, um, or when we see this theme, Asian middle-class and growth, is that how do we define their wealth? Is there a GDP number or is there a income per month number? Yeah, look, it, it's an interesting point. It varies nation by nation. Um, you know, one of the key, you know, if you, t- if you think about a household, um, the largest consumption item for a household will be their house. Um, house prices are very different across all Asian markets. And we, you know, think about house prices relative to incomes and whether that ratio is, you know, too high or too low. Mm. Even in a big country like China, um, you know, house price to income ratios very, very across all different cities in China. But broadly speaking, you know, we think about in terms of China anyway, the, the middle class is, you know, you know 15,000, 10 to $15,000 plus. Mm. And, and what is the upper uh, income brackets? So let's call it the premium income brackets. That is $35,000 uh, okay. and plus. And what are those, and how many people are we looking at within those or kind of percentage-wise in those groups? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've got this slide here uh, at the China income population mix. um, And these are basically uh, different income cohorts at a household income level um, through China, through time. So you can really see what China looked like back in 1990, just as it was entering in Mm. to the global, global trading system. Um, and, and what China looks like today. And so today that premium consumer um, is about 80 million people. So the population of Germany, um, that's how much are sitting in that $35,000 plus income cohort. And over the next decade, that's going to grow to about 300 million people. So just you know, shy of the population of the United States. Um, it is going to be the single biggest driving force um, in, in global consumption, it's going to be a big propellant of the Chinese consumer. And, you know, businesses around the world um, are very, very eager to be exposed to this consumer. Um, so, you know, we, we, we do a lot of work and thinking about these big trends and themes. And, and then, as you said earlier on, it's, you know, it's picking the right business or asset that can benefit from this, from this structural trend. And if you were comparing that to, say, India or Korea or Indonesia, what does the, the split look like? I assume yeah. India would be a few you know, years back. Yeah, so if we, if we look at that, um, if, we, if we just keep looking at that chart um, of, the, of the income population mix for China, and, and we're, 20, we're at 2021 here now in, in, in China, 
Um, India is probably in the mid 2000s <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, the bars, yeah. if you can visualize the bars. Yep. Um, in Indonesia, Indonesia is probably also mid, mid 2000s. Um, and, and so, you know, that's just a function of the, those economies, um, you know, transitioning towards consumption economies or, or, or the income levels in those economies um, now transitioning to more of a middle class um, society, uh, whereas China's already got a very large middle class society. So that $15,000 and above um, yes. income is, you know, as you can see in those charges, pretty much the whole Chinese consumer market. Um, but in the early 2000s, um, you know, when China was entered WTO and, and, and economy really took off, actually, you know, back then, over 50% of the country was living on $3 a day or less. And now, and now that is, um, you know, we're talking about a couple of percent, you know, on these, on these numbers. So it's been an incredible transition towards a middle-class society, an amazing move, uh, moving hundreds of millions of people out of, out of poverty. Um, and so today it's a very different consumer in China versus 15 years ago, but the consumer in India is more akin to the consumer in China 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay. And you're talking about household income, you know, going through the roof effectively, you know, it, it would be, you know, similar to household income in Australia, tripling and quadrupling, and then, then the effects on the economy of, of, of that. So, Absolutely. um, I have, uh, I supposed to ask you five quick questions <laughs> and I kind of made the first one 10 minutes. So let's go on to the, the next four. Um, <laughs> bring to, to bring some context. Yeah, the context of the, of the start of this. But how much of the speaker, uh, sneaker and apparel giant Nike's revenue is derived from Asia? Yeah, uh, Nike's, uh, you know, single biggest in market, most important market in Asia is China. Uh, that alone accounts for about 15 to 16%. Wow. And total total Asia will now be just under a quarter of the business. Um, so, you know, Nike is obviously very, you know, Asia is very important for Nike. China is very important for Nike. Um, you know, you're just seeing general consumption trends increase, like athleisure as a trend um, was a few years behind in Asia. Yep. And that's now just really taking off. And how much of the Chinese consumption was cashless in 2020? Yeah, so just uh, sorry for uh, 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 taking a bit longer, but taking going to this slide, uh, which is uh, which is a really important slide. Uh, it's 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 over um, the the cashless system in China is 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 approaching about eighty five percent. So eighty five percent of all transactions in China are happening on a smartphone. Um, you know that is uh, unprecedented in terms of the world. Asia broadly is following this cashless system. Um, because these countries in Asia um, are mobile first markets, yep. um, the adoption of fintech cashless systems is, is just prolific. And the, and the important trend here is that your bank is not down the road, it's on your phone. So in China, you buy insurance, auto insurance, life insurance, credit cards, all through your, your, an app on your phone generally and financial or WeChat pay. Um, yep. And that's a trend we just see emerging all over Asia over the next decade. 
I had a friend that went to China and um, she was visiting her family and she went into a 7-Eleven and couldn't work out how to pay. And her mum had to show her that it's a cashless uh, WePay um, uh, uh, shop. So, you know, (laughs) so even, you know, it's interesting that the industrialization, I suppose that's the right word, industrialization is the format. When when you think about it as the same format, you know, intuitively you'd think it was the same format that we went through or, you know, other third worlds went through, but it's not, you know, technology is having a big, big impact. Jumping so, multiple um, steps, isn't it? Yeah. So the sale of products growing, which sale of products is growing faster in China, shampoo or loafers? And, <laughs> I took out the Gucci, Gucci part. I just... <laughs> he had Gucci loafers, but, you know, just loafers. Yeah, look, I think uh, it's, it's definitely now, you know, you know, high-end, high-end loafers. You know, whether they, whether they, whether they be of the group as a proxy, as a proxy of Gucci, <laughs> of Gucci brand. No, but you know, generally speaking, higher-end, you know, consumption of loafers or just higher-end apparel. Mm. You know, this is this is on a you know this is growing in the in the twenty percent. Wow. Um, in in China because you know you've just seen this huge emergence of this uh, middle class you know majority of the country has moved into the middle class brackets but also the premium class has become very large just just as context the premium class economy in china for the last decade has grown at about 20% in size uh, and we think we'll grow in probably the mid teens um, yep. to get to that 300 million size level um, so it's you know it's definitely a big consumption trend and in India, what, is yeah, similar? India's India's a bit different. Um, shampoo, uh, shampoo, uh, and just general FMCG products are growing quite at a quite healthy clip uh, because India is still quite far behind, and people are just trading into these first-time FMCG items. Um, but India has got other fast-growing products, so you know, India's a highly um, underpenetrated credit economy. Um, okay, okay. So mortgage. You know, if we go to this slide here, it just looks at um, household debt to, to GDP per capita yes. um, across all these Asian countries. And then we've got the Western countries on the right, right-hand corner. Yep. What, what we notice immediately is, you know, India and Indonesia strike out as one of the most underpenetrated credit economies um, on the planet. Um, and, and so, you know, mortgage growth in India is growing in the 20s. It's mm. a very fast-growing category um, people taking out home loans for the first time um, and even if india grows its household debt um, at a pretty s- stellar pace for the next decade um, it's only going to catch up to south africa by the end of the decade not um, catching australia as the most leveraged country in the world <laughs> yeah. i like that not one in the a, top right hand corner probably not in this decade yeah <laughs> And if you could sell, if you, you didn't have a job anymore and you, you, you're you an entrepreneur and you needed to sell one product into the Asian middle class, uh, Sunny, what would that be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a it's going to be an intangible product. It's going to be financial services and, mm. and, and, and largely, largely for a few reasons. Well, first reason, you know, these are the most mobile first markets in the world. Um, everyone has a smartphone in Asia. Um, and your know, data costs are very low, particularly in countries like India. So um, access to cheap data on a smartphone means that um, financial services are now at my fingertips. Mm. Um, and when you combine that with underpenetration, so life insurance penetration in China, 
um, is one of the lowest in the world. India, it's one of the lowest in the world. We know that these countries are going to get wealthier. And we know as you build wealth, um, you want to protect your wealth and you want to protect your assets. Um, so life insurance becomes a very important part of that dynamic. Ping'an insurance is China's largest life insurance business. So we, we, we're very positive in that in that trend. Yes. And as we showed in the previous slide, like in India, banking, mortgages, credit cards, still very underpenetrated. So we think one of the big trends in Asia over the next decade will be the adoption, like we've seen in China, will be just the adoption of the cashless um, systems, you know, and and that will proliferate into other financial service products. So definitely focus on that element of the market as the economies become more service driven in nature. I'd be leaving finance if I was uh, <laughs> if I was selling to Asia. Yeah, get out of there. <laughs> and well, you, you mentioned Indonesia um, a number of times. I mean, I think as Australians, we forget about Indonesia. We kind of fly over it. Um, but it's it's uh, it's 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 an incredibly populous country, and it's more like India, is it, in terms of its infancy and where it's growing and uh, the middle class. Yeah, that's right. In in terms of its uh, development, it's 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 probably even a little bit ahead of India. Mm. But um, you know, some of the trends we see are very positive for Indonesia, which are the same for India, which is um, e-commerce penetration is very low. You're talking about five to seven percent penetration in Indonesia, but household debt to GDP is very low. Um, Indonesians are also you know they're buying things online for the first time. It's a mobile first market. Um, they're buying financial services for the first time. So those secular trends that we see for India are also very similar for Indonesia. Um, and, um, you know, the government is very focused in winning some of that manufacturing business, some of that reshoring, offshoring that's going to happen and go to Vietnam or, or other South. It's also a big opportunity for Indonesia and the government's been building a lot of infrastructure to facilitate that, facilitate that opportunity. And, and that's going to be very positive for the for the economy and the Indonesian consumer. So why do these, why do all these other countries better at cashless and we can't do QR codes to go to restaurants? That's just Victoria, <laughs> mate. You can, certainly you're in New South Wales, aren't you? you're in Sydney, so yeah. yeah. He can well, do look, QR cards. Is just we, we better and faster adoption? Like when you give your child an iPad and they know how to use it quicker than you do? Is it? it, it uh... you, gave, you gave your child a merit or a pen. <laughs> it wasn't a real iPad. It's creative. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's a function of, um, you know, habits take time to change. You know, if, if, if you think about, you know, it takes 30 to maybe 90 days to, to change a habit. COVID's definitely, cha you know, changed a few habits. Um, QR codes are now much more common in New South Wales. And, you know, these kind of trends um, um, were basically just, just started off in emerging markets um, just off, off the get-go. Look, it's also hard to build out banking distribution and, you know, the, the banking systems of China and India are quite, are quite complex, right? They've, they've spent all their times being state-run banks um, or have not really focused on digitalization. Um, and so as these, you know, big tech companies, particularly in China, offered the service on people's phones, the experience was very good. Whereas walking into a Chinese bank, the experience, the, the financial service experience is very poor. And these, and these Chinese regional banks typically focus on corporate lending rather than retail banking lending. So, you know, there was a few um, nuances such as that. And then along with the fact that the, the adoption of mobile phones led to a, just a greater awareness that, you know, my, my smartphone is my, is my computer and I can mm. do everything through my smartphone. 
um, and, and that's created a, a much quicker adoption curve, um, which we which we think is is still very much intact. Is that a good segue into our? Sorry, Jamie. Yeah, go, Drew. You're right. And a good segue into our, we're trying to split this into about three different kind of sectors to focus on. So financials and the opportunity in kind of credit growth um, across and and I guess insurance growth across the uh, Indian and Chinese uh, economies. Mm. Should we break that down a little bit more? What What's the credit growth you expect in the next few years in India, for example, or what's the life cycle of typically someone that is experiencing this you know if you're going from moving into middle class um it, do you first get credit at your local shops or do you get a credit card or do you get your mortgage or do you get you know business loan what, what's the typical life cycle and i assume it's different every depends where you're at but what's the life cycle of generally you know that you'd be looking at of people getting credit in their lives yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, tr traditionally, it's been, you know, very much like what we've experienced in Western markets, as in, you know, you get to a stage in your life, you've been working for a few years, um, you want to buy a home, you go to your bank, get a mortgage. Um, that's a similar life cycle that's been happening in most Asian economies. You have the more mature Asian economies like Japan or um, South Korea, where the household debt to GDP is higher and, and they are more developed in their, in their progression. And they've, and they've turned into more technology, you know, driven economies. And then you have like Indonesia and India, which, is, which are right at the other end of the spectrum, where people are getting a mortgage for the first time because they just purchased a home. They're just, just, they're just married. Um, you know, it, it's typically some change in their, in their lifestyle. But the other very powerful trend uh, that's happening, uh, which was, you know, let's say first in China, and it's kind of proliferating across Asia, Asia and other emerging markets, is this concept of basically e-commerce. You mm. buy something online and you don't pay for it straight away. Now, there's a company in Australia called Afterpay, <laughs> which, is, which is called the buy now, pay later. But this concept has been happening in China for a very long time where, you know, effectively you buy something, you buy a small ticket item on, on your on an on a e-commerce website um, and, and you pay for it later, either yep. through installments or... or or a small consumer ticket loan. And that is exploding across the whole region. And that is the big opportunity in Asia in terms of uh, consumer credit. Um, we know that a lot of these countries have low uh, debt to GDP. So that's a, good, that's a good spot to be in. We know their incomes are growing at a quite healthy clip. And we also know they're adopting e-commerce um, for the first time. So you know, India's e-commerce penetration was 2 to 3% prior to COVID and, and it's taken a big shot on the arm and same with Indonesia and Vietnam and all these other Southeast Asian economies. And so there's not only e-commerce as an opportunity, but it's also the consumer loan off that e-commerce ticket purchase that's creating this huge opportunity um, in financial services as well. Is that um, one of the, so Tencent took a stake in Afterpay last year. Was that right? Kind of yeah. mid-crisis? Yeah, well, Tencent, Tencent has um, an interesting uh, business model. Uh, they they have stakes in various businesses around the world, uh, and you know they took a stake in Afterpay in the crisis last year. Um, but you know, very unclear what they're going to do with that stake long term. It could be just wait and see. Um, but you know, Tencent offers this service in China, which is you know you buy something on WeChat Pay, um, and they offer you you know a buy now pay later style product. 
um, because you know they see that as the you know financial services opportunity with the payments mm. opportunity, mm. which go hand in hand. Yeah. And what's the you go, Jamie? Back to home loans. So if I'm in India or China and I go and say, okay, I'm middle class now and I want to get a mortgage, um, does is it very similar to the way we, we could? we would consume mortgages. Do I, if I'm middle-class in Australia, I typically go out and borrow 95% of the house um, and then try to pay it off over the next 30 years. Or is it like, you know, credit used to be in the sixties in Australia or the fifties where you had to have more or less 40% of the purchase price and, you know, um, and, and, and it was a lot more contained. Um, so I suppose my question is if, if I'm, uh, in India, and I want to buy a house. Can I? What kind of lending facility can I get? Can I get ninety five percent like I can in Australia? Yeah, no, it's it's more conservative across most Asian countries, including India. Yeah. So the so the origination LVRs are you know closer to the seventy in the seventies. So you kind of you kind of have mm. to save up and you know or 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 get maybe some support from your parents or, or just save up and before you buy a home. Yep. The the banking market in India is very different to Australia. So, um, you know, think about it as that 70, 70 to 75% of the banks in India are run by the government. Um, so just to give you context, you know, my grandfather had, uh, you know, set up a term deposit for me a long time ago in India with the State Bank of India. Yep. And um, through a process of poor administration and bureaucracy, they can no longer verify me as that, uh, you, you know, account holder. Um, so, you know, every time I go there, they kind of say, well, you know, this, this is term deposit in my name. Can't you, you know, this is, this is my proof of ID. Just, just, the, just the level of sophistication in terms of IT and infrastructure um, is not very high. Um, so, the, so the experience, the retail experience with private sector, public sector Indian banks is very poor. Yeah, okay. So the private sector Indian banks is generally where the middle class, as you, as you say, are going. They're going to the private sector banks, which, you know, they only have 20, 25% market share. Mm. But they're basically taking hundred percent, near hundred percent of incremental retail lending, mm. um, and and they're very digital savvy banks. Uh, they 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 very they very operate very digital. You know, they acquire customers more digitally, um, not just through the branch network, but also very digitally. Um, but yeah, the process is the same. You you obviously you, you will have an engagement with a bank, and you know it could be the fact that um, your 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 that that bank has a strong association with your employer. It might be taking the the corporate deposits of your employer, and therefore you you know they're offering you a a, a, a basically a hook to come and bank with them through mm. maybe a discounted mortgage. Um, so that's all this. That's all you know. Pretty pretty straight straightforward. But you know the opportunity is just large because the mortgage uh, mortgage debt to GDP is still quite low. Um, you know there's about seven eight hundred million debit cards in India, but only one hundred million credit cards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, so credit card penetration is still got a long way to run. And you know, HDFC Bank has one in three of every credit card that you know that's out there in India. So they're dominating that market. And as we spend more money online and we, you know, do things by e-commerce, we use our credit card. So that's a big opportunity as well for, for, you know, HDFC bank to, to take, to participate in as well. And then the data as well. Absolutely. Then it's all, it's all the data you build um, as you, as you're working out more and more parts of the consumer uh, mortgages and then, you know, offer, offer other tangential products such as insurance and, and asset management. 
Mm. That's a core holding in the fund, HDFC. Yeah, we, we, we bought HDFC Bank in the, in the, uh, in the crisis of uh, last year. Uh, it's a name we've, we've followed for a, for a long period of time, high quality banking franchise uh, in India. And, you know, COVID really gave us that opportunity to, to buy it when, you know, as, you know, stocks in India were being um, sold down, emerging market stocks will be sold down very heavily. And, and our confidence came with just the, just the you know, 30-year history of risk management at the, at the business. You know, every uh, downturn HDFC has uh, proven to handle it very well. They've got the lowest cost of deposits in the nation, um, which allows them to do, you know, fairly uh, lower than industry average uh, risky lending, as in um, through their deposit franchise advantage, they can offer mortgage rates to much higher quality borrowers, offer credit cards to much higher quality borrowers, and still make a very healthy net interest margin spread. And that's been consistent through time. And, you know, India's got a lot of deposits, but those deposits sit in rural India. And, and it's hard for an urban center bank to tap those deposits. HDFC is probably the only bank that is really tapping those deposits. So tapping low-cost deposits in rural India and then lending them to urban India. And that yeah. kind of advantage, that's a structural advantage that you know, we don't think other Indian banks, even other private sector Indian banks, um, what's what's the net that. interest margin like for HDFC? Yeah, so o- overall in the whole business, it's, a, it's about, you know, high threes. Um, mm-hmm. but, but obviously it depends product to product. So credit cards will be more and mortgage sure. will be less. But, but generally, generally high threes, it's, 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 it's it, you know, and, and it very comfortably can, the, the loan book can grow at 15 to 20%. So it's like so the CBA of, um, I mean, the Australian net interest margin is like 1.8 at the moment. So, and HDFC sounds like the CBA of India with the strongest brand and market. It sounds position. safer than CBA. <laughs> well, I was looking at it last time. They got 19%, is it capital? Uh, capital adequacy at 19% compared to 12 for Australia. Mm. Yeah, very well capitalized. And uh, yeah, you know, in a way to think about it as like CBA of India, very retail, strong banking franchise, very strong association with with consumers and, um, you know, just just best, best in class in, 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 in various, you know, mortgages, credit cards. And loan, so, loan growth over in India is something like 15, 16% compared to something yeah. like 1% in Australia or system growth anyway. That's right. So India, you know, has got much faster household credit growth because of the underpenetration argument. But also now with after COVID, India has, is, has recovered quite sharply. So mortgage loans or auto loans are above 2019 levels. So India's really come out and, and, and recovered uh, in, a nice, in a very nice fashion. And, you know, HGC is participating in that. And we talk about banks. Uh, once you buy a house, you typically have to insure it. So, is there an insurance company that you think um, can you can you talk about an insurance company that you you might hold or you like in 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 this area? Yeah, sure. Um, you know what's really interesting uh, about the Chinese life insurance market is you know we show those charts how wealthy China's become over the last fifteen years, and and will continue to go. And and the trends are still very positive um but life insurance penetration in in china is actually behind india if if you believe it or not okay and and that's a function of you know a a very savings driven household sector but but even with the savings that the chinese household sector has 
Um, we're at a point now where, you know, if the main income earner of every Chinese household was to, you know, pass away, obviously that's pretty extreme what I'm saying. The, the gap, the gap that is estimated by um, actual, actuarial experts is, is close to, uh, you know, 55 trillion US dollars income gaps. So there's a huge, huge uh, need to, to plug that gap. Now, whose who's, uh, liability will this be? Um, well, obviously, it's the householder's liability. It could be the government's liability through through social through social safety nets, and China doesn't really have a very strong social safety net. Or we allow the private sector or um, insurance companies to plug that gap and offer a life insurance product, and that's what um, attracts us about the life insurance industry in China. It's a structural growth industry um, where 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 these businesses have a long long duration. Uh, of growth and Ping'an is the most dynamic private sector player um, with a very strong digital franchise, very, very, very powerful uh, tech ecosystem. And, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, they've also got um, various other financial services bolted on. So a, a, a Ping'an life insurance sales agent isn't just selling life insurance. They're also referring their, their clients to Ping'an bank for a mortgage or an auto yep. loan. Um, um, it's it's got a it's got auto insurance business, so as a result, it's a full service financial service offering in in China, but with with life insurance as the as the main angle. So I've heard it uh, referred to as China's biggest tech company by some people. <laughs> Maybe not the biggest tech company, but um... <laughs> yeah, so... you know, look, China, look, Pingan is investing about four to five percent of their revenue each year in technology. Um, which is very differentiated to a typical uh, financial services organization. Pingan mm. has about 25,000 IT software engineers. Um, so it's really heavily investing in, 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 in technology. And, and the reason is um, not, not because they you know, want to turn into you know, Microsoft or, or, or Google. It's, it's because uh, building a technology advantage through either knowing your customer better through big data, um, getting your life insurance sales agent better trained on different products, uh, understanding the customer better, will create um, just higher quality sales um, sell-through and better agent retention. Uh, and if you don't do it, you know you're you're, you're basically going to be just like everyone else in the industry. So it's a real competitive advantage they're building. That will compound over time. You know these investments they make may not may not draw all the uh, fruits in year one, but by year three, year four, their ability to understand their customer, cross sell, target policies, look after them will be just far superior to the peers who have not done these investments. And that's that's the big angle for Pingan. It's it's just compounding that it, that competitive advantage um, each year. Um, so that, that competitive advantage compounds to a very big number over five years. We kind of saw, I think, this, this concept of, you know, going outside your core business and investing into ancillary technology. Seek got sold off something like 20% because they're looking at, you know, investing into venture capital or other growth areas. Is, there, is it a more entrepreneurial spirit in, in China or Asia compared to Australia? Is that... Um, would you agree to, to, to well, the tall, we'll call it tall poppy or something in Australia, but um, 
it seems to companies get rewarded over there for you know thinking about the future where they tend to get punished here unless they can pay. But in the US, it's kind of similar too. Like if um, you get rewarded for being entrepreneurial and thinking about other streams of income streams for your shareholders, but in Australia, <laughs> you can get destroyed. Dividend, so. dividend, dividend. Yeah, yeah. So. That's yeah. That's that's right. Um, so look, China. China has. Um, today, one in every three global unicorns are formed in China. One um, in three, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So they they they've they've absolutely got a massive startup culture, mm. and the entrepreneurial spirit is is quite high. But you know what what we see in in technology companies in China, their focus is on consumer tech, um, because you've got this 1.4 billion population. Mm. Um, you've got this enormous middle class and enormous premium class. So there's actually this huge revenue opportunity if you just crack that. Yep. So, you know, if you, if you get e-commerce right in China, you're going to be worth, your company's market cap will be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. If you get payments right, your company will be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. If you, if you get, you know, XYZ, you know, right in that space. So it, it, it's, it's a very high reward in getting that right. You get social media right, that's going to be that opportunity. And, and as a result, um, you know, there's, there's just become this enormous creation of companies and value in, 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 in China. Uh, because of the consumer, uh, it's just such a large opportunity. But now where China wants to really move up the technology curve is is in things like automation, um, in semiconductor manufacturing. Yep. So, so, you know, if you think about, um, you know, Chinese tech companies, China is a, effectively a very closed off um, um, technology market. You mm. know, um, it's very hard for Western companies to come to China and, and get to the scale. So, um, you know, these Chinese tech companies, whether they be Tencent, Alibaba, Meituan, or, or even ByteDance, which is TikTok's parent, all these companies are collecting enormous amounts of data on their, on their own users. And the, the next level is, what do we do with this data? How do we mm-hmm. better utilize this data to better target advertising or just generally improving our service offerings? For that, we need... Uh, more technology for that we need access to u.s semiconductors um, we need access to u.s semiconductor design um, so they're very dependent on the u.s tech ecosystem but increasingly with the chinese uh, longer term strategy is to in-house that also in in china so the funding that's going to semiconductor design companies in china is extraordinary today the government's sponsoring a lot of startups in that space so i mean you know, something will probably hear about more in the next three to four years, um, more and more, you know, like NVIDIA type companies or Intel type companies that pop up yep. in China over the next three to five years. Essentially creating the whole vertical chain within China rather than using. Then being reliant on, on, on the US because we clearly know that's a huge, that's a huge vulnerability for China. Um, no doubt US, the United States leads the world in US conductor, US semiconductor design. All the manufacturing happens in Taiwan or South Korea <laughs> at the leading edge. Um, so they're very de- so China and the United States are very dependent on Taiwan TSMC. Um, but China wants to, you know, try to build out that uh, that that domestic ecosystem, which will, you know, it will take time. It will take time, experience, uh, knowledge, know-how. But that's the path they're on. 
Yeah, Drew and I were in Hong Kong a few years ago and we met, um, well, we were at a presentation. Um, we didn't really meet uh, the <laughs> CEO of Ant Financial. And um, it's just fascinating how he was, They obviously Alibaba, incredibly um, successful at putting all those things together. And off the back of uh, Alibaba, they started a financial services company. But uh, again, not a traditional financial services company because they used the data to understand that all this money was sitting in cash within the Alibaba Barber accounts, and then they could potentially offer a rate that then would use big data to assess the credit worthiness of all the consumers. And of course, they had all the data of uh, transactions and margins, and they could offer this instant credit approval within your cash management account. So you go to your cash management account and you see all your cash, and they'll uh, able to offer something like three times what a mainstream bank could offer. And then they, on top right-hand side, it was your credit that, that's been pre-approved. So if you needed credit to buy things, you could just buy it straight away because they had already assessed you from big data. And then they said, well, um, you know, the, the um, central bank was worried about them uh, getting data from them. And they said, well, we'll just, we'll just plug in. You can have live data. Yeah, we don't need to report to you daily. We can do it by the second you know yeah. so this kind of concept that you're talking about that the evolution of businesses in a really emerging and growing market is different to what we've seen before you know because of technology so were you in line for some ant ipo shares yeah so we you know we were um uh we're very fascinated by the ant business model um it's definitely a uh, disruptive force to financial services um, in the sense uh, that, you know, they, because they have such a huge ecosystem in e-commerce, um, they've also, um, you know, got all these other ancillary businesses. The amount of data that Ant Group or Ant Financial can see and analyze is just far superior than the traditional banks can. Um, now, the, the regulatory, you know, the regulatory risks are always there particularly when you're in a very disruptive industry and, um, you know, disruption sometimes does bring in, you know, disruption tends to occur first and then the regulator catches up later. Uh, and that's happened in China. Um, but, you know, what we see in China is that the regulator is an anti-tech, uh, quite the opposite given what's going on in the world. The regulator is pro-consumer. Uh, it's a very pro-consumer tech-focused fo regulator. And uh, whilst that might be in the short term, you know, a hindrance to the growth rates of Ant Group, in the long run, it's probably the best thing, you know, that you create a much more stable and uh, a, a, a much more uh, focused financial service offering that does the right thing by the consumer. So, look, we think the Ant Group uh, uh, IPO will come back. We're still, you know, we're still interested because we think it's a disruptive business model. But look, I think from our point of view, uh, you know, we're looking at what's happening in Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, there are companies there that are kind of taking the Ant Group playbook and, uh, you know, executing that in, in Southeast Asia, where there's a very large unbanked population. Mm. Um, so where traditional banks actually just struggling to get out there and people are buying things online for the first time, um, which is giving, you know, some of these, uh, uh, companies in Southeast Asia, that same advantage that Alibaba and Ant had in China for the last 10 years. 
this is similar to uh, we've spoken about a company called Mercado Libre in South America. Are you you referring to C? Is it um, the kind yeah. of e- e-commerce? I couldn't work out what the name was, but it's pretty clear. Southeast Asia Limited. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, <laughs> I saw it and thought it was a fishing company. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, C-, C Limited is a is an interesting business. Uh, they have ten cent on the register at about twenty twenty five percent investment stake. So they've got a very strong partnership with Tencent. Um, you know, Tencent, lead, you know, leading payment, you know, it has a leading digital franchise in China, but a very strong payments franchise in China. So, you know, the, we, we think there'll be a lot of cooperation between C and Tencent, know-hows, what to do, what not to do, what worked in China, what, what might work in Southeast Asia. But um, the, the focus of C is to build out an e-commerce uh, business across Southeast Asia. Um, and, and um, and with e-commerce, uh, there's there's the opportunity for payments. So they're also tagging on payments, and then you tend to you know take that payments opportunity um, into your offline world as well. You don't you don't just buy things online. You also use it offline, as we've seen in China. And you know that hence we move to a much more you know cashless system as as things are being transacted via our our smartphones. Uh, and C is also expand has also expanded into into Brazil. So they've They've, um, they are trying to move into all these underpenetrated e-commerce markets. You know, most of the countries they operate in, um, e-commerce penetration hasn't actually even hit 10% of retail sales. So, you know, versus in China, where we're probably closer to like 30, 35%. So they're in much more underpenetrated e-commerce markets. And Australia is only at 10% as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, Australia maybe C needs to have a look at Australia. I've, re- I've been writing a daily update where all these uh, retailers so, you know, say that they had 200% growth in online sales and it's still 7% of, of total. Seven, so yeah, right. It's like, just look beyond the headlines. Um, so in this premier section, we, we all know and we've been told about you know the Chinese consumer or the Asian consumer and their love for big brands like Louis Vuitton and Gucci and BMW and Mercedes and Bentley. Is there, does that bit like tech, does that internalize as well to have homegrown brands? And is there an opportunity to find Chinese premier brands that are consumed by Chinese consumers? Or is it still very much an external brand experience? You know, we've uh, held Louis Vuitton for a while and done incredibly well, but is, is there more brands internally developing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the um, category category by category it does differ. Mm. Uh, however, yeah, there is. I think you know the the for example in the um, alcohol space, um, you know the um, there's a very very strong um, awareness of the high end Chinese Baiju brands, so Quecha uh, Maltai and and Wulangi, which are the two premier. Um, uh, Baiju brands. We've seen the the third player, um, Luzao, which is fifteen seven, which is the fifteen seventy three brand. They've they've sponsored the uh, Australian Open in p- prior years uh, as another category. And and those companies are uh, are still very dominant in that premium alcohol space. Yep. And you know the likes of you know high end cognac or high end whiskey or even high end wine have 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 done okay. They've done. They've done well, but they've not really conquered in because the the palette 
the domestic palate is very skewed to those domestic brands yeah. um, and, and that domestic consumption. And, and it's also for, you know, cultural reasons. So, so 80% of a high-end Baiju is consumed around the four national holiday periods a year. Yeah. So, so that's incredible amount of consumption in a very, you know, short space of time throughout the year. It's going to be hard to rock up to, you know, you know, your Chinese New Year banquet with a bottle of whiskey. Um, or um, penfolds. <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 it, there's, there's cultural reasons why that will remain very strong. And as that premium consumer category grows in size, there's just going to be more consumers that enter that space and more trade up into the higher, higher brand products. Um, so that's definitely the case in, in the alcohol space. And, and, in, and in, um, in brand and apparel, that's also been the space. There's also been the, 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 the trend we've seen. You know, Nike does very well in China, but there's a lot of strong domestic brands um, such as Leaning um, and, and, and some of the brands of Anta that have done very well in, in, in China as well. Um, so it is, it is mixed. It, depends, it does depend category to category. Um, there are these domestic domestic champions. We're seeing we're seeing some of them emerge in the auto space, like the EV space, where mm. they've kind of grown very quickly into these, you know, more cool brands that have emerged. Um, uh, not sure if the market caps make sense, but definitely the brands awareness yeah, yeah. Has, has gone up. The pricing's totally different. That's a different question, isn't it? So, Drew, you talk about a sporting brand in uh, China, don't you? That's a basketball brand. It's... That was, yeah, leaning. I'm a yeah. Miami Heat fan, Dwayne Wade, Jimmy Butler. Uh, I think Dwayne Wade was like their biggest star in, in the Just US. Just growing, when, isn't it? When he took so, that on, yeah. It's interesting to see if that'll be reversed and, you know, that brand then will come back to mainstream economies like ours and we'll all want to wear their stuff. So. <laughs> But uh, I think we're running out of time. Uh, I think we ran out of time, actually. We're past that. So, uh, Sonny, first, uh, Drew and I want, want to say thank you. Uh, hopefully, we can have you back at some other point because this conversation, I'm sure, could go for another two hours. Um, enjoyed the last 45 minutes or so. Uh, thanks very much. Good luck with uh, managing your capital and your client's capital. Um, talk to you soon. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks, Sonny. See you, mate. Cheers.